I wanted to start out today by sharing an item on my bucket list. Something I would like to do before I kick the infamous bucket is travel the Camino de Santiago. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a Christian pilgrimage site. It's a, the, des, the final destination is the cathedral in Santiago de Compostela. Uh, in order to get the completion certificate, which they hand out, uh, you have to have traveled it by foot at least 100 kilometers. So you get these little passports and they stamp them on different stops along the way. But you, it can, you can take a trail that's much, much longer than that. I mean, they have them that start in Paris, France, and go down. They have them that start in Madrid and go up. And they have them that start down in Portugal, Lisbon, and come up. So uh, you can come at it from a lot of different uh, directions and different lengths. Um, but eventually, you end up traveling through some of the most beautiful regions in northern Spain. Uh, along the coastline, beautiful small towns, and uh, uh, you also are going through Galicia, which has some of the best cooking in Spain. So I've, I would love to take two or three weeks to casually stroll my way to Santiago de Compostela, enjoying beautiful scenery, great company, and good food. Now for some people, it's a much more spiritual journey that I'm describing uh, for some people, going on this trip is uh, the fulfillment of a vow they've made to God. Maybe some people do this uh, expecting to interact with God. Maybe they're trying to earn his favor by doing this walk. Maybe they want God to help them out with some desperate need they're facing. Or maybe they simply want to go deeper in some kind of a religious experience. Today we're going to look at the most significant journey Abraham ever took. And it's a journey that uh, culminated uh, a life lived following after God. Before I start reading, I've titled today's message, On God's Mountain. We're in Genesis chapter 22. Before I start reading, I think it's helpful to review what's happened in Abraham's life up to this point. Uh, the moment we're looking at right now in Abraham's life in this passage, he's probably maybe 112, 115, 120, who knows? No, I doubt he's that old. Maybe, probably no more than 115. But uh, it, this is one of the concluding events of the life of Abraham. And he's had a long uh, important life. Now, really, the biblical story with him starts really late. God first approaches Abraham when he's 75 years old. Now, he has been married to Sarah, who knows for how long, but they've been married, and in all their years of marriage, she has been unable to have any children. So it's just Abraham and Sarah, and he's there living in Ur of the Chaldeans with his family, his family clan. When God shows up and says, Abraham, I want you to go to the place that I will tell you to go. God doesn't even tell him where he needs to go. He just says, I want you to leave behind your family and go wherever it is that I tell you to go. And uh, very simply, Abraham does it. He leaves behind his family. The only family he brought was his wife, Sarah, and his nephew, Lot. Um, and he heads out. And eventually... 
God leads him down to the land of Canaan, which would later become the land of Israel. Um, and that's where God ends up settling him. And along the way, uh, as he's following where God's leading him, God uh, makes some promises to Abraham. God promises to Abraham that he's going to give him a very large uh, family, which uh, seems odd because he's 75 years old and still doesn't have one child, much less a multitude of children. But God promises to make his descendants great and uh, they're going to multiply and be innumerable like the stars in the sky or the grains of sand uh, on, on the seashore. They're, they're going to be uh, impossible to count. There's going to be so many of them. God promises Abraham that he's going to establish his descendants in the land and that the land is going to belong to them. And in the initial promises of God, it's like, go east and west, north and south, look wherever you want. It's kind of the idea you're going to inherit the earth and eventually it, it does become specific in that uh, it's going to start with uh, living in the land of Canaan. Um, and then finally he says, I'm going to bless you. In fact, I'm going to bless you in a very specific way because in you, every family on earth is going to find my blessing. That's what God promises to Abraham. So Abraham uh, believes God and trusts God and uh, time passes and uh, Sarah is not having any children. And finally, Sarah gets tired of waiting and says, Abraham... Uh, it's not happening. God said so, but I'm not, I don't have any kids, and I've not had any, and since God promised we'd have them, I haven't had any. So uh, I have my servant woman, Hagar. I want you to take her as a concubine, and she will give you a child, and at least that way your name will be preserved, and you will have a child. You deserve a child, Abraham. I want you to have him. So take her as a concubine, and this way I will ensure, Abraham, that you have descendants and Abraham does that and Hagar gives birth to Ishmael and then uh, God shows up and talks to Abraham and says Abraham Sarah was the person I had in mind Sarah's the one who's going to give you this child in whom your descendants is going to be great Sarah overhears this and she laughs because at that moment when God tells Abraham this, Sarah is 90 years old and Abraham is 100. And she laughs. It's like, man, I have never been able to have a kid, but it's not even that. I've already gone through menopause. I mean, I am no longer... Even if I had been able to have kids before, I certainly can't have kids now. And she laughed about it. That's ridiculous. But eventually, it seems she came around to trust what God was saying. And she and Abraham conceive, and she has this child. They call him Isaac. Laughter. Because it was so ridiculous what God had promised. And yet, there it is. He has given them the promised child. So we're at a point in Abraham's life where it seems like the, the story is the way we would expect it, right? God 
presents you with some challenges and this idea of leaving your family behind to travel who knows where in antiquity that was so dangerous you needed your family clan to protect you if you just took your stuff and went out on the road anybody that ran across you could kill you and take everything you had there was no police there was no nothing back then this is uh, thousands of years ago and and uh, he trusts God, he goes where God tells him, and he ends up living out the rest of his life as a sojourner, as a refugee in a foreign country. Remember that in this nation when you're dealing with refugees, that the father of our faith ended his life as a refugee because of God. So he, he, he's been faithful. He does all these things God has said. He trusts God. He obeys God. Every time God says something, he does it. And now he finally reaps the rewards of his faithfulness. God comes through and he delivers this miraculous child, Isaac. And God says, in him, I'm going to confirm all the things I've promised to you. Isaac is going to be the way through which I'm going to fulfill all the things I have promised to you. That is the background to what we're going to look at today. Abraham is in this moment in his life where it seems like he has done everything God asked of him and God has come through and it's a happy ending and it's a great story. Let's conclude his life with uh, he lived to a ripe old age and, uh, and that's, that's how it ends. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! And he said, here I am. So it's at this moment in his life that God chooses to put Abraham to the test. You might say, what do you mean now he tested him? He's been doing it for 25 years. He's been testing his faith over and over again. Why now? He's already proven over and over that he trusts God and he obeys God. When God gives him instructions, he trusts him and obeys him and does what he says. Why does God choose this moment to test him? I don't know. But God chooses to put Abraham's faith to the test. So he calls out to him, and this is the common response of Abraham when God talks to him. Here I am. He is present and he is attentive and his attention is focused on the God who is speaking to him. He's not distracted or doing something else. Here I am. Verse 2. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. God describes Isaac as his only son, even though he has Ishmael. And I missed, I didn't include this, but let me tell you now. You see, when Isaac was a, a small kid, uh, his older brother Ishmael was mocking him and kind of poking fun at him. And when Sarah saw that, she told Abraham, I don't want Ishmael around. I want Isaac to be the one who inherits everything you have, and I want you to send Hagar and her son Ishmael away, and I don't want them to, I don't want this older brother, when you get old and feeble and die, I don't want him to take over the family clan. I want Isaac to be the one uh, to inherit 
what you have. And initially, Abraham is, is concerned about this, but God says, you know what? Uh, Sarah is right. Uh, go ahead and send Hagar and Ishmael away. And God says, you will not be the one to provide for Ishmael, but I will take care of Ishmael, and I will make a, grid, a mighty nation out of him as well. So uh, entrust him to my care and uh, do as Sarah has said. So uh, Abraham had already put all of his eggs in the one basket of Isaac. He had already sent away Hagar and Ishmael and they were no longer part of the family picture. So God says, this is it. Your only son, laughter. The joy of your old age. What seemed to be a reward that you spent a hundred years waiting to receive. Take that. Go to the land of Moriah. And I want you to offer that boy as a burnt offering. There were different types of offerings in antiquity. Ways in which you would offer up an animal as a sacrifice to God. The burnt offering was the most complete surrender of a sacrifice to God because what you did is you arranged the altar and you had the wood on it and you uh, slit the neck of the animal and bled it and basically put it to death and then you would put the entirety of the animal on the altar and you would burn the whole animal as a pleasing aroma to God. There were other offerings where the person presenting the sacrifice would take some of the meat. The priest in some sacrifices would keep some of it. In some sacrifices, he only offered parts of the animal on the altar. But the burnt offering was the whole thing completely given over to God and destroyed. So God is asking Abraham to do that. I wonder what this moment was like for Abraham. To reach that point in life where you have done what God asked and been faithful and finally it seems like God has said, okay, because you have obeyed me, because you have trusted me, here is everything you ever wanted. Only for God to say right then, I want it all back. I'm taking all of it away. I'd like to ask you a question. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. When God takes things from you that you thought you needed, how do you respond to him? Let's see how Abraham responded. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he then in his and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. What does Abraham do? This has been a pattern in his life. He obeys immediately. We're told he got up not late, early. He got up early the very next morning and made all the preparations necessary to obey God. 
He saddled his donkey. He's already 100, what, 112, 115? I don't know. It depends on how old Isaac is at this point. He had him at 100. How old is Isaac? Old enough to carry enough wood to burn his whole body. Young enough that his 100-plus-year-old father could overpower him and tie him up. Somewhere in there. Maybe 12. He... Uh, saddles the donkey, gets his son, cuts wood for the burnt offering, and he goes where God's told him. Notice this detail. On the third day, Abraham looks up and sees the place. That means that three days, Abraham got up early, packed his donkey, and kept going. Three days he had to wrestle with the temptation to just turn around and call the whole thing off. This was not a simple pulling the band-aid off moment for Abraham. It was three agonizing days traveling with his son. I wonder if Isaac could see the struggle Abraham was going through. I wonder if these were sad, sad, sad days for Abraham. And if Isaac could tell. I wonder if Abraham was treasuring these final moments with his son. All we read in the narrative is just a very simple obedience. One foot in front of the other. Going through with what God's asked for. They get to the mountain. He tells the young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And some people read into that, that Abraham is somehow prophetically uh, looking forward. He knows how it's all going to play out. I don't think that's what happened at all. I don't think Abraham had any guarantee of anything when he went up that mountain. I don't think he had any idea how God was going to resolve this situation. All he had were simple instructions and he was going to carry them out. And I think what he's telling them is basically what he needs to tell them for them to stay put so that he can go do what he's got to do. You stay here, we'll get up there, do our thing, and we'll come back. I don't think he's specifically outlining for them what's going to happen. I don't think Abraham knows. It does turn out that the two of them will return. I don't think Abraham knows that at that moment. He takes the fire and the knife. Up they go. You might wonder, why is Abraham doing this? He finally has what he's longed for his whole life long. And now he's going to kill it? He's going to lose everything he ever wanted? And perhaps that's where we misunderstand Abraham. You see, Isaac wasn't everything he ever wanted. There's something he wanted more. He valued his relationship with God more than anything else. More than even the very next thing in his heart's affections. Verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, uh, I'm sorry, to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? 
Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. The details of this are so touching. As they're going on alone, the child realizes something's not right. We have everything we need except the sacrifice. And he asks about it. Where is this lamb that we're going to sacrifice? And Abram's response resonates throughout the rest of the Bible. Again, I don't think he had any idea the profound significance of what he's expressing here. I think he's just telling his son, God provides what's necessary for the sacrifice he requires. In this case, he's already provided the lamb he's asked for. It's you. He just doesn't tell him. God has provided what he needed. My son, as it turns out, when the story plays out, he's not going to have to sacrifice Isaac because God will provide another animal. He will provide a lamb that Abraham's going to be able to sacrifice instead of his son Isaac. But even more uh, broadly than that, that whole thing is just a small illustration of what God is actually going to do because that little lamb that's going to be offered up instead of Isaac is simply uh, uh, one little animal for one child. But the problem affects the whole human race. And God will eventually provide for himself the offering he needs that will deal with the sin of the world. And that offering will actually be God's own son. God himself will do what he is asking Abraham to do in this text. The Father will send the Son to willingly give his life for the sin of the world. The two of them go up together. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Notice how quickly the narrative is given here, Uh, how fast-paced all of this feels, right? They get there, builds the altar, lays the wood, ties up Isaac, lays him on the altar on top of the wood, grabs the knife to slaughter his son. Abraham wasn't pretending. He wasn't playing. When he picks up that knife, Isaac's life is over because he didn't pick it up to pretend anything. He picked up the knife to end Isaac's life. The decision was made. He was going to do exactly what God asked him to do. I wonder. There are things he had to have thought of those three days, right? What am I going to tell Sarah when I get back? And Sarah loves Abraham. 
This woman has laid her life on the line twice already. Let other men take her off and pretended to be his sister to protect his life. This woman loves him enough that she said, take my servant as a concubine so that at least she will give you a child because I can't. She loves Abraham. But finally, at the tail end of her life, God has granted her what she longed to have to give to Abraham her whole life. How is Abraham going to come back and look her in the eye and say, I'm sorry I had to sacrifice Isaac. God asked for it. I don't think she could ever forgive him. You might say, well, Hebrews tells us that Abraham knew God could raise his son from the dead. Well, yeah, that's probably true. He believed God could do anything. I don't know that he expected God to do that, but he believed God could do anything. And uh, suppose he was thinking that. Even suppose he was banking on that. I'm going to kill him and God's going to bring him back to life. What's that going to do to the family? Even if God brings him back to life. What's that going to do to his relationship with Isaac and to Sarah when she finds out? Will they ever trust him again? Or is God, I mean, is there any scenario in Abraham's mind where this story ends in anything but utter ruin and disaster of everything that means anything to him? It doesn't matter. When he reaches that moment, he grabs the knife and he is going to end Isaac's life. Whatever comes after that, is up to God. He's going to do it. I want to ask you, again, put yourself in Abraham's shoes or, or contemplate this moment in Abraham's life. If God were to ask you to give up the most important thing in your life, would you obey him? And let me ask another question. Think about the answer to that question. Why or why not? If you were to obey, why would you obey? If you were not to obey, why would you not obey? What would that say about what's going on in your heart? Verse 11, but the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The angel of Yahweh intervenes <coughs> and stops Abraham before he kills Isaac. And says, don't harm the boy. Notice this, now I know that you fear God. I thought God knew everything. What do you mean now I know? And there's different ways in which knowing can be understood. We tend to think uh, we're, we're very Greek in our way of thinking, very much affected by Greek culture and philosophy. So we think of knowing as something that goes on in your head, like I know... Um, what the temperature water freezes at. It's 32 degrees. I, that's something I know. 
That's not the kind of knowledge the Bible generally is talking about. The, the Hebrew mindset to know is more than just information in your head. It's somehow connected to experience. The, the euphemism for sex in the Hebrew culture was to know someone. So uh, that's in that sense, God is saying, now we know that you fear God, that you revere God profoundly, that you trust and honor God. Before that moment, I don't think Abraham knew quite how deep his commitment to God ran. I don't think he was aware of just how profoundly committed he was to seeing this relationship with God through whatever it may cost. And it's in that moment when he takes uh, everything that seems to be of any meaning in his life and lays it on the altar and ties it up and picks up a knife to end it simply because God is worth more than all the, all the rest. At that moment, Abraham knew. He experienced his faith. It wasn't theoretical. It wasn't something he was thinking about. It was something he knew in his bones. And God says, now we know. Now we know you have faith. That's why in the Bible, Abraham is called the father of the faith. He becomes the model for us all of what it means to trust God. Absolutely. Even if it seems crazy, if it seems ruinous, catastrophic, still to trust God no matter what and obey. Abraham came to know through this test where his faith stood. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have had those dark moments of the soul where you have had to decide, am I going to shrink back or am I going to lean into this trust? When everything else is falling apart around me, am I going to cling to Christ alone or am I going to say that's too much? The cost is too high. You have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham was embracing annihilation. In Hebrew culture, you wanted children because that's the only way anybody's ever going to remember your name. You needed a lot of children for your name to survive death. Let me ask you to think about this. When you have chosen to trust God in difficult moments, what have you learned about your faith? Verse 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, Yahweh will provide. 
As it is said to this day, on the mount of Yahweh it shall be provided. That Yahweh will provide, Yahweh Yireh, you've probably heard the uh, Germanized version of that, Jehovah Jireh. That's because in German the J is pronounced like a Y. Uh, Yahweh Yireh. You've probably heard people say that. The Lord will provide. I wonder how many times people who say that are aware of the context in which we find that phrase. The person who coined Yahweh Yireh and what he meant when he coined it. For some people, the Lord will provide means, don't worry, you may not have what you need right now or what you think you need, but God provides. You don't have the job you want, don't worry, God provides. You don't have the family you want, don't worry, God provides. You don't have the career you want, don't worry, God provides. You don't have the house or the car you would like to have, don't worry, God provides. That is not what Abraham was talking about here. He already had all that stuff. That's not what he was talking about. He found himself in a moment where God said, I demand something from you. I demand Isaac's life and found at the very last possible moment that there was an offering provided by God himself that supplied what God needed so that Isaac did not have to lose his life. God provided him with a substitute, an atonement. Someone who would take, uh, whose life would be taken in place of Where did Abraham find that lamb, that ram? You see, what, what Abraham meant to say by all this, by coining that phrase, Yahweh will provide, Yahweh Yireh, is that there is a geography to God's provision. God's provision is not just some willy-nilly thing that he throws out uh, whatever's going on. You just sit on your couch at home watching TV and eating Cheetos and God will provide everything. There is a geography to divine provision. Where did God provide what Abraham desperately needed in this moment of his life? Where? It wasn't in Abraham's tent. It was on God's mountain. Abraham had to relocate to the place God told him to be and go there to do the thing God had told him to do before God provided. You may wonder, why isn't God providing? Are you where he told you to be? Are you doing what he told you to do? If you're not, then you're not on the Mount of Yahweh where provision happens. But Abraham discovered, if I trust God and I follow where he says and I do what he says, God gives me everything I need. Verse 15, and the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, 
Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. We could say that's the end of the story, right? Abraham obeyed. His faith was put to the test. He came to an experiential knowledge of just how deep that faith ran. And in the midst of all of that, he found that when he laid everything on the altar to God, God himself provided everything he needed. And rather than losing it all, he lost nothing and gained everything. He found that God provides perfectly when we trust him and obey him. That could be the end of the story. Trust and obey God and he will provide perfectly, absolutely everything that you could ever need. But that's not the end of the story. God talks to Abraham a second time and, and repeats the blessing he's talked about before. And he goes on to talk in the singular of offspring and uh, I think in the New Testament sometimes this is interpreted very specifically that it's in the singular because he's not talk God's not talking about the descendants of Abraham in the plural but of one descendant of Abraham who will possess the gates of his enemies who will defeat every enemy that needs defeating and who will be the source of blessing to every nation on earth. God is telling Abraham about Jesus. That he is going to bring up a descendant of his and use this descendant of his to bless every human being on the face of the earth. All creation will find its blessing in this descendant of Abraham. Now here's the thing. God was going to do this either way. And the fact that Abraham trusted and obeyed doesn't mean that if he hadn't, God would not have brought Jesus. God would have done it anyway. The only thing that would have changed is that Abraham would not have been the one through whom God, get, God did it. He would have done it some other way. But because Abraham trusted and obeyed, not only did God bless Abraham, but that blessing spilled over and covered the earth. God blessed Abraham so much that he became a blessing to every human being to ever draw breath. One final question to ask you to consider. How have you seen your obedience to God in difficult moments bless others? So, is God that treasure to you?
Is he so valuable? You would sacrifice spouse, children, job, money, whatever it took to hold on to him? It might seem extreme. It is extreme. But God rewards that level of commitment by giving equally of himself back to us. You give me all you've got. I will give you all I've got. When we trust him and obey him in this manner, when we leave our comfort zone and travel to his mountain, to the place he calls us to, and do there what he has told us to do, we find that our sacrifices amount to nothing. God greets us on his mountain with provision, meeting our deepest needs. We find that all we should have paid has already been paid for us and that he is truly all we needed. This radical obedience, rather than severing us from others, sends us back home blessed by God and overflowing with blessings for all those who surround us. We give the best and most significant contribution to those we love by loving God first and allowing His goodness to so permeate our lives that divine glory is showered on them as a result. Abraham is called the father of the faith. Do you realize that in doing this, Abraham taught Isaac something so important that Isaac became the next link in this blessing to all the families on the earth. It wasn't Ishmael, it was Isaac. And what Isaac discovered when he was bound on that altar and his father had a knife in his hand, what Isaac discovered is that God is more important than anything. Even the thing you love most in life, God trumps it. Isaac carried that information the rest of his life. Are we living our lives that way? Are we teaching our children this? That God is more valuable than absolutely anything. He's more important than you. He's more important than me. Do our kids know that God and the things of God are a more vital commitment in your life than band camp or sports? Or hobbies? Or are the things of God the first thing when there's a calendar conflict that we ditch? Are we being parents like Abraham was to Isaac? Are we showing them that we give God everything up front first and everything else comes after that? If we will. God provides all we could ever need and blesses us in such a manner that everybody around us participates in the blessing. What better way to live is there? We're going to sing a song of invitation and this is your opportunity to respond to God's word. And I believe God's word always elicits from us a response. God wants us to speak back to him when he speaks to us in his word. And I think today he's challenging us to put him at the front and center of our hearts and say, I am going to live this life of reverence 
for you. I am going to go where you call me. I'm going to do what you tell me. And everything else is up to you, God. Maybe you need to come today and tell God, God, I am ready to lay it all on the altar. Do what you will with my life. Take it and I want, I want nothing but you. And I want to discover the kind of provision that only comes on God's mountain. I want to find out what Abraham found out that day on Mount Moriah. I want that to be my experience of life. If that's you this morning, this is your time. Come forward, share with those who are going to be here at the front. If you would come to help with the invitation, let's all stand. And take their hands, share whatever God's put on your heart. And let them pray with you and pray for you. Come while we sing.